as we want to look at the Quran and what the Quran says about the woman, we need to look a little bit at the background, the culture, what it was like at that period of time when the Quran was given. Life in the Middle East, in the early periods, society was very patriarchal, but there were a few areas of society that were matriarchal and also polygamous, although there isn't any matriarchals so much today. But patriarchal styles and polygamy are still a part of the life of many peoples of the world. There were urban cities. It wasn't completely agricultural because Mecca and Medina were cities. But there was also agricultural land. There was the desert areas. And the Quran reflects this in its texts and in its images. Known in Arabic, this period is often called the time of ignorance, Jahiliyyah or the period when people didn't know what God wanted them to do, before God gave the Quran in Arabic. And Sword of Four declares that that time people had many wives or different arrangements, or there were baby girls who were put to death. It also talks of a period in which there was lots of divorce, or divorce was handled differently without a period to protect the child or give the identity of the father of the child. It was also a time when there were various religions and same part of the world as Islam. There were Jewish people, Christians, Zoroasters, pagans. There were some people known as Hanafi, which isn't always able easily to define exactly what they were. It seems that there were people who followed the life of Abraham. And it was a very much a culture of storytelling and lots of poetry. So it's not a surprise that the book would be in a poetic form and in the language of the storytellers and the poets, similar. It soon developed that there were high language and low language. And the government at that time was the Byzantine Empire, along with parts of the Persian Empire still having a great deal of sway in the area of Persia. But Persia also had a view of women that was different. Persia did not allow women to serve as witnesses in the court, and Zoroasters often expected the wife to perfectly obey her husband and declare that she was always obedient to him. And there were different Christians with views of women differently. And there was also women who were married to the church. The Hanarabi Code, which is a more ancient code, had many similar laws as well that we find in the Quran. Man could divorce his wife if she bore no children. A woman would have great difficulty in getting divorced was a part of the code. Marriage was monogamous except for kings. Kings could have many wives. Adultery was always punishable by death. And veiling was allowed by wives out of respect, but slaves and other immoral people were not to veil. Even some Christians had oppressive standards at different times. We look at the women who were in Muhammad's life. Muhammad married Khadijah, his first wife. She was a businesswoman. She owned a great business, and he worked for her, a woman who had money, who had standing. So there were different types of women, wealthy women. And there was Aisha, one of his wives, who was 
very young, supposedly, when he married her. And she became the favorite wife, and she told many of the hadiths. So she had a role in the spiritual development of Islam and was responsible for many things that my Muslim friends believe today. There was also his daughter Fatima, who, though we don't know a lot about her, is very important to our Shiite Muslim friends because she was married to Ali, who was one of the Khalifas, and he is part and important to the Shiite belief and one of the Imams of Shi'i and his sons. But now to begin to look at Muhammad and his life. Muhammad was born in Mecca, and we don't know a great deal about him, except that in his young life, he had a great deal of difficulties in that he became an orphan at a young age. But his spiritual ideas began to develop after he was married to Khadija. And in 610, during the month of Ramadan, when he was fasting and seeking some sort of spiritual help, he had visions in a cave outside of the city of Mecca. He had gone there to perhaps pray or meditate, and he had his first visions of how the Quran came. And in Surah 96 and 97, you have how God sent the Quran down to him, and the angel Gabriel brought it. One of the important words to understand is always the idea that it came down. So it has an existence previously, and it comes. And it, he was asked to read, or read out loud, recite. Because it's true, actually, that most of my friends, when they read, they read out loud. They don't read silently. And so reading is verbal, and, and it's more like proclaiming or reciting. And the word to speak the Quran, the Qara, or the Qari'an, has that meaning, to recite, to speak. But it's interesting, the word was already used in the Syrian church or with Christians for the reading of the Old Testament, the reading of the Gospel, the readings, were also called the reading because they read the scriptures out loud. Just to think a little bit about this Quran, there were 114 surahs, and the chapters are called surah, or suras, and the verses are called ayah, and ayah is sort of a sign or a miracle. So all of the verses are as if they are signs and miracles from God, which came down from the start of 610 in the city of Mecca until 622 when he moved to Medina. And then the Quran came down in the city of Medina for the next 10 years also. So the Quran happened in the city of Mecca and the Quran happened in the city of Medina. Actually, it's sort of, it happens as part of Muhammad's life. And when Muhammad dies, the Quran also no longer comes. It only came to Muhammad in his lifetime. One interesting thing about all the surahs that they all begin, except one, with the Bismillah, in the name of God, Bismillah. And the surahs are not chronological. So if you have a Quran and begin to look at it, you will see that surah one is sort of is very special just by itself. And then it seems to be that surahs one, two, and three are very long. And then when you get further up to the back of the Quran, they're very short. 
Actually, the shorter ones are really earlier ones. They come at the end, and the longer ones come first. So it seems that that's how they're put into the book. But actually, the chronological timing is difficult to find, although many people have tried to work it out. But generally, our Muslim friends know them by the names. So each surah has a special name. Sometimes it comes from the first line of that chapter or something in that chapter special. And there are the 114 of these special ones. So the Quran is seen as the word of God that came down, Tanzil, and it came down on the night of power, which we celebrate sometimes during Ramadan because it happened in Ramadan on the month of the 25th or the 27th night. And so we celebrate the night of power each year. On the night of power, they like to read the Quran from beginning to end. It's something similar to the size of the New Testament, and you can read the whole Quran through, perhaps they starting around 8 or 9 o'clock to maybe the wee hours of the next morning. It's an interesting thing to see and, and witness, although I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you always go to it. And, of course, it would be in Arabic, and you wouldn't understand everything. But the other thing about the Quran, it's, it's the wahi or inspired by the God or through Gabriel. And it's quite interesting that somehow the wahi or the inspiration happens behind a veil. Muhammad didn't see anyone or know anyone, but it came as a vision or something that happened covered or enclosed behind a veil. <clears throat> Later surahs include lots of biblical material. So as you read the Quran, you will find the Quran speaks of Adam, of Moses, of Noah. And one surah, chapter 12, is the life of Joseph. Most of the other information is scattered throughout in various parts of the Quran. But this one particular surah has the whole life of Joseph in one surah. The Quran that we are looking at today was gathered at the time of Muhammad. Muhammad did not write it down. He recited it to people who memorized it and recited it to one another. But after his death, there was a collection made. And we speak of these various collections. So the first collection that's very important is the collection made by Zaid ibn Thabit uh, during the time of the first Khalifa, Abu Bakr. Then later, Othman, who was another one of the Khalifas, made another copy because it was soon realized there were various kind of copies or different versions, and so they made four standard copies that were supposed to bring together and cover the whole of the Quran. And it was based on the previous one by Said, but then these four copies were made and put in the various important cities of that part of the world. But later we have learned through times recently that there were some Quran bits and parts found in Yemen. And these pieces and these parts don't resemble or actually match totally the Quran that we have in our hands. But our Muslim friends will proclaim that in Samarakandu, Tashkent, there is a Quran that is a copy from Osman. There's one in Topakaya, Turkey, and there other copies supposedly that are 
purely the whole of the Quran, but on further examination we find difficulties that these Qurans are not complete. And in 1924 in Egypt, in Cairo, the school there produced the Quran, which is the one that most of us are reading today, and copied from another manuscript. And it is the copy that we use today, and it also is not identical to the previous ones. So in some sense, we have part of a problem that there is no complete Quran from the time of Muhammad and no early manuscripts from the early 9th century. In some sense, that might not matter, but what but our Muslim friends claim to have manuscripts, claim to have the complete one, and claim it is an exact copy, all of them, that came directly from God. It is the claim that makes it difficult for us to accept their explanations and these other copies that don't match their claim. Now to begin to look at the Quran, the ones and the copy that we have, to address the issue of what does this Quran say about women. One of the verses that they, my Muslim friends love to tell me about is the verse that addresses equally men and women. Surah 33 is a very important surah, and 30, verse 35 will say, For Muslim men and women, for believing men and women, for devout men and women, for true men and women who are patient, constant, and women who are humble themselves, for men and women who give in charity, for men and women who fast, for men and women who guard their chastity, for men and women who gauge much in Allah and Allah's praise. For them, Allah has prepared forgiveness and great reward. And it's quite interesting that it doesn't address just men or just women, but both together, God expects equally from them the same. And God speaks of the creation of women. Although it, the creation story is not identical to the scriptures, it does say in sort of four that God created both from a single person of like nature uh, with mutual rights and to dwell in tranquility. Although the first woman who is created is not named, and we will look a bit more at that later. But equality somehow seems to get lost, although it seems God addresses both of them, but when we find other verses that seem to address slightly different. Sort of four is one that causes perhaps the controversy and how do we explain everything. Sort of four and 32 and to 34 talks about men as the protectors of women and the maintainers of women because Allah has given one more than the other and because they support them from their means. It is allotted for women that what they earn, they can keep it as one not necessary to use their earnings to support the family. But therefore, righteous women devote themselves and are obedient to their husband and guard what is right in their husband's absence, what God would have them guard. But as to women on whose part you feel some disloyalty and ill contact, admonish them, refuse to share their beds, and lastly, beat them. And if they return to be obedient, Seek not against them, but if you feel a breach between them, appoint arbiters 
that from a family or from others that Allah will cause this to be reconciled. And so we have rather a very controversial verse that somehow men are protectors. And in that culture of a patriarchal society, certainly that was true. The men were the protectors and the guarders of the family and maintainers if women didn't have jobs that were financial. And yet it speaks of women earning money in the same verse. So there must have been some means upon which they earned money or received financial support from their families. But then it talks of the man's right to, if he thought that she was not doing the right thing, to be able to punish women, to admonish them, and to even beat them. Sometimes these verses are an embarrassment to some of my modern friends who said, oh, it doesn't really mean it. Uh, it's just to speak to them. But actually the Arabic, when you're reading Quran, is very strong, and the word is quite a word that would mean beat, really to hit hard. You wouldn't use the word if you just meant a slight tap. And Surah 2 also gives a verse that women have rights similar to the rights of men, but men have an advantage. So there's always all sorts of ideas as to what does the advantage mean. How can we understand these verses? One thing suggests equality. Another suggests that there's some problems. But of course, again, we're going to find that there's the fundamentalist view of this. People who are very conservative and take the Quran literally will say, yes, women are different and have different roles and can be treated differently. But then the more modern and liberal ones say, this is just things that were happening in the past. But of course, there's equality and many countries have introduced family laws and all sorts of equality measures that women have equal rights and so forth. But the Quran is not changeable. If it came from God, then we have to deal with the fact of what it says. There are a few other verses that deal with the legal status of a woman. In Sort of Four, it talks about whether a woman can inherit, and it speaks of the portion that a man inherit is equal to two women, which suggests that perhaps she only gets half of what a man would get. Sort of Four also talks about that a man may have more four wives, and so again, it suggests plurality of women for the man. And also the verse about women being a witness at court. Two witnesses out of your men. If there be not two men, then one man and two women, because one woman uh, is not able to do it on her own. It needs two to, to give the woman the status of legal standing in the court. Maintenance, women are allowed to claim their, their rights and their money. And many of my friends have said to me, Yes, we wouldn't have equal uh, checkbooks and our husbands, we would have our own money and our own accounts and our husbands would have theirs separately. But in actual fact, many times, the women of my personal friends who have jobs and earn money, they would support their children and use their money to help their family. They wouldn't necessarily be wanting to keep it for themselves because they would long to help their children as any mother would. And many times you have a mother only who has a job and dad has no work at all. But one other thing that's quite a little bit different is that in that culture, if you are a daughter, you have your father's name. And so often many of my friends 
have a different name. They don't take the name of their husband, but they have their name and their father's name, and they belong to their father's family, just as their children belong to her husband, to their father and his family. And so sometimes it can get a little confusing, the different names that everyone has in the same family. Uh, but women also can go to Mecca, but they would go to Mecca with a guardian or with someone with them. They would not go to Mecca on their own. And so we will begin to look at how this relationship to women. We've seen that the Quran speaks with great equality to women, but also we see that there is a certain amount of confusion. There are things that seem to suggest that men have rights that women don't have. How are we to interpret them? Is the traditional view to be accepted, or will we accept different views? And does that affect the view that we have of the Quran? Can we just dismiss things that God has said? And and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking of one of the names of God that he has given. God in the Quran is often called the Lord of the worlds, the Lord who is the ruler, the King of kings, the ruler of all the earth. And certainly, and thinking of God as a king and as a ruler, that he would create us in a way that was equal. And I often like to talk about that verse where it says that he has made fearfully and wonderfully created us, and he knows us and knows our parts, that he made us before we were born, and how wonderful it is to know a God in a relationship who knew us and knows the plan he has for us as women. And I, interesting to share that with my Muslim friends. Do you think that God made you special and for a special purpose? And how do you see yourself? Sometimes it's very difficult for often they have a lower self-esteem. I had a friend who always kept saying, oh, I'm just a cow, I'm just a donkey. Uh, but I said, I don't think so, because God has made you as a person. And to be a woman, it, to be someone wonderful for that God has made, and to give them that confidence that the God who made us has made us for a purpose and knows us, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made.